Welcome to Narratives of Asia. A podcast where students of all backgrounds are invited to talk about all things Asia. This podcast is by Asiatic Affairs Society from University College London, or UCL, which looks to create open and constructive conversations on geopolitics, business, technology, environment, culture, history, and more happening in Asia. Hi everyone and welcome back to Narrative Asia. I'm Angela, Publications Officer at UCL Asiatic Affairs and second year European Social and Political Studies student, and I'll be your host for today. On another episode of Narrative Asia, we have the pleasure of having with us our affiliate research team from Bentham Brooks Institute. For those of you who are new to BBI, this is a newly established student-led think tank formed by an alliance of the five of the biggest international affairs societies at UCL, and which encompasses a bespoke research programme producing peer-reviewed, high-quality research policy papers aimed to influence policymakers and influential figures. By the time of publishing this episode, the team would have finished their policy paper, which should then be available to read online. It's a pleasure to have the team here with us. And before we properly begin, would you all like to just quickly introduce yourselves, your role with BBI, and perhaps a few sentences to summarise your research topic? Hi, everyone. I'm Aidan. I'm a second year history student, and I'm a researcher at BBI. Hi everyone, I'm Jeshreen and I'm a year one economics student. I'm a researcher at BBI too. Hi everyone, I'm Hugo. I'm a second year history student um, at UCL as well. Um, and I'm a research member at the BBI. Hi guys, um, I'm Leo. I am the research lead for this project. Um, I am a third year anthropology student. And just to give a brief summary of our project, um, we are affiliated with Asiatic Affairs. Uh, the overarching umbrella theme is the state of democracy and authoritarianism in Asia. Our project specific was going to look at the recent coronavirus crisis in the context of political ideology, digital surveillance, and public health policy. Yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for joining me today. Um, so it's actually quite timely that we're having this conversation today, because I think it was about a year ago when countries were detecting their first cases of COVID and followed shortly by national lockdowns around the world. So obviously, evidently, much has changed since then. Um, but kind of working our way backwards from your research paper, what conclusions did you draw from this comparison between the Asian states, Asian states and also the Western liberal democracies? I think um, if we're going to speak broadly about the conclusions we've drawn, um, it's going to be we'd have to start off by prioritizing our findings about um, forms of governance and, and political ideology. Uh, we were trying to conduct a more nuanced comparison of Western liberal democracy with uh, Asian forms of governance and um, authoritarianism and socialism in some cases. And the, the reason why we chose our three countries, which are China, India, and Taiwan, is we thought it provided a more complex picture of the state of politics in, in Asia. The broad conclusions, I guess, would be that th there is a significant difference in the way that authoritarianism and liberal democracy conduct themselves in the face of um, public health crisis and the kind of tools they deploy, as well as uh, the strategies and the responses from civic society and other uh, international parties. And um, looking at um, the forms of governance and political ideologies and also looking at the tools that they, they deploy, do you think there's a correlation between the state regime type and the state capacity? Yeah, there, there definitely is a difference between the two. So uh, the state capacity with authoritarian regimes are definitely bigger, but whether they are willing to employ that like swiftly in response to crisis is a question. But then, uh, even though for most um, liberal democracies, uh, the state capacity is smaller, uh, they're more willing to employ it to respond to public health crisis, as we have seen in Taiwan. 
Mm-hmm, absolutely. Just on the back of um, the topic of willingness, if you were to focus it on China, and so we've seen from the very beginning this whole, um, well, the media portrayal as mass diplomacy to the recent politicization of vaccination rollout. What does China's style and approach to diplomacy kind of tell us about its national priorities? And how has this approach been received domestically as well as internationally? Uh, so I, I personally feel that China has embarked on an extensive and a very highly coordinated uh, propaganda campaign to try to establish itself as a global leader in the, containing the virus outbreak. So if we can look at uh, China's world foreign diplomacy, where they actually leverage uh, social media tools to spread misinformation about the origins of the coronavirus and discredit the responses of democratic governments in European and Western countries. So, for instance, we had uh, Chinese Foreign Minister spokesman Zhao Lijian uh, promoting the conspiracy theory that uh, the US soldiers were the ones who brought the virus to Wuhan. And that really shows how China is trying to leverage on this public health crisis to expand its authoritarian practices abroad and try to change the uh, pandemic narrative. Um, in terms of how it's um, received domestically, overall, the citizens of China definitely view the state's response favorably. But this is like in contrast with the international community where of the like general perception is mistrust, even though as seen in the polls, um, people say some of China's response is effective. How they went about it is not exactly the right way, which generate a sense of mistrust. Uh, with mass diplomacy, I think it's um, definitely what Jasmine just said, like trying to change the narrative, because as we have seen, like in the beginning of the pandemic, um, the overall approach uh, was to cover up such as by like the silencing of like uh, dissidents as well as like uh, the banning of like these buzzwords on the social media Weibo. Okay so looking at China's ulterior motives and trying to change the pandemic narrative abroad surely with Taiwan, Taiwan also practiced um, some sort of mass diplomacy in sending a lot of masks abroad, sending supplies abroad because they were coping with it so well then how, how does this um, compare? Okay, uh, so uh, we personally feel that Taiwan's COVID-19 response was more of a democratic response because it, they actually framed the COVID-19 infodemic as a public crisis and tried to adopt a transparent digital governance system where they worked with citizens to uh, tackle the spread of COVID-19. So for instance, uh, we can actually look at Taiwan's culture of hacktivism, where the entrepreneurs and the hacktivists, they collaborate to create platforms for citizens to share collective intelligence and uh, participate in a fight against COVID-19. I think this really shows how the Taiwanese government tries to facilitate public participation. And I think this really helps to encourage civic engagement, which uh, allows it to gain support among the Taiwanese populace. And, and I would add that the success of the Taiwanese response to the pandemic has, I think, um, made it a very kind of important case study for a lot of countries to see what sort of values and what sort of principles can you export from that country. And Taiwan, I think, has tried to go into the international community to offer its help because I think it has a lot to teach. However, I think China 
has kind of impeded on these Taiwanese efforts to contribute to the global effort to fight this pandemic. It's easy to kind of term liberal democracies as open, transparent, and like um, a lot of emphasis on civic engagement. Um, but I think you mentioned at some point in your paper about the authoritarian advantage. It's undeniable that China's response to COVID has been effective. And often it's been mentioned as a matter of compliance, where Asian states have an authoritarian mentality and people are more obedient and more trust in the state. But when we're looking at the case study that you mentioned in India, how does this, um, what role does this play in its pandemic response? I think India is um, a kind of difficult case to assess um, this sort of statement because I think that the government has used this pandemic as an excuse to pursue other interests rather than those of public health of its population. And in most of India's measures have been aimed at restricting um, liberties and infringing on individual freedoms. And that's part of an effort on Narendra Modi's and the BGP government um, since 2014 to pursue this kind of like Hindu nationalist agenda, which also has some authoritarian tendency. And we saw a few days ago that the Swedish um, Institute of democracy, stop classifying India as, as a democracy. But I think it's difficult to assess the statement that you said, because India's response and the measures that they have put in place have not been aimed, I think, at properly fighting the virus and also supporting the overall population. I think uh, Hugo spot on with that answer. I, I wanted to add as well, this question of, of India, you, you can't talk about liberal democracy without talking about illiberal democracy and this idea that the two have recently come into conflict that is uh, democracy and typical liberal ideals so the phrase illiberal democracy i think is a confusing one but it's especially uh, relevant these days india hungary poland among others are examples where certain western ideals of liberalism have clashed with a democratic structuring of politics the other thing you could mention was Hindu nationalism, I think, is partially responsible for eroding the infrastructure of democracy in India. And um, it's a very important case study for the rest of the world to see how illiberal democracy can very quickly become both not liberal and not democratic. Mm -hmm. And just on the back of that, so we mentioned like what the other interests are, but how are they pursuing these interests? And this whole idea of the world progressively moving towards um, a digital surveillance model, how is this, how is this manifesting in, in India or other case studies that you've looked into? I think the first thing that shows that India has been pursuing other interests in its kind of coronavirus um, pandemic response has been the fact that in order to supposedly stop spreading false information about the pandemic, the um, Indian government has put severe limits on kind of free media expression. And this has been supplemented by other measures such as setting up coronavirus track and trace app, which is firstly obligatory for everybody and has very serious security concerns um, that haven't been addressed at all by the Indian government. That just feeds in into this, this different aspiration of this current government, who has also closed down parliament, because supposedly it's not safe for all parliament members to convene in the same assembly, even though um, most countries um, in the world with a democratic parliament have been able to do so. India has focused its um, coronavirus pandemic response on kind of infringing on individual rights and freedoms, rather than addressing the key issues which is kind of the health of the population. And they haven't, they have done very little, I think, to improve infrastructure. They have done very little um, to stop the spread of the infection in the slums. Overall, you can see that their response, I think, is motivated by different things. 
Perhaps less so about the motivations, but would you say that this sort of approach is unique to India, unique to these regimes in Asia? Or can you see um, similar um, adaptations in democratic states? For example, you mentioned track and trace. You know, at the moment in the UK, we're talking about vaccine passports and there have been long going debates in Asia regarding health QR codes, traffic light systems. We can tell evidently that this uh, adaptation of digital surveillance model isn't really um, unique to Asia, but is in a post-COVID world, like what, what are its implications and what challenges do we face? What kind of challenges do we face? I think it's an interesting way of framing the question. Obviously, these kind of things are not unique to, to Asia. I think one of the most prominent examples in recent public consciousness is the, the Patriot Act in America passed uh, post 9-11, um, whereby the NSA could tap any phone call that they wanted. These kinds of concerns related to privacy in the digital realm are not new. Any attempt to play them up as uh, potentially harmful or threatening to the West, I think, is a piece of rhetoric or political maneuvering by American and British pundits to um, critique and undermine the Asian success in dealing with coronavirus. Um, That being said, the traffic light QR codes and the tools used to control the movement of people in Xinjiang, among many other methods that we elaborate on in our paper, I think do pose serious concerns. Like all infringements on individual liberty that are done over the digital realm. I think it's unfair to say that the situation is scarier in Asia. But that being said, as Jasreen elaborated on a little bit, there is a kind of sentiment going around that is related to worries around the export of Chinese strategies to Southeast Asia, South Asia, to Africa, in an attempt to expand their sphere of influence and obtain a a larger role on the global stage. And these are legitimate concerns, and they need to be understood in the context of Western imperialism as well. Um, We can't say that America hasn't been doing this for years. Absolutely. And on the note of this whole idea of, you know, exporting Chinese strategies and those Chinese authoritarian strategies to the rest of the world, in consideration of its initial approaches to COVID and also just bringing it back to the topic of COVID and putting this into context, um, how effective has the strategies been? I think, in my opinion, it's definitely a really mixed one. Obviously, we can tell China has been bouncing back from the pandemic very quickly compared to other countries. Once it started to actually tackle the problem by uh, allocating resources top down, they were able to control the pandemic very effectively. That's why we can tell the numbers in China are a lot smaller than other places in the world. But that said, because the initial responses were so ineffective, uh, resorting to cover up and suppressing dissidents, it kind of allowed the initial outbreak to spiral out of control to begin with. So we can't say for sure that China handled the pandemic very effectively because China definitely had the capacity to contain the virus, but it chose not to, allowing it to spiral out of control. It's definitely a very mixed response, but overall it's more effective than other countries in the world, I would say. And even though the response has been relatively successful, I think, um, in the middle term, in mainland Europe at least, I've seen very little questioning on whether we should possibly adopt um, the Chinese model of uh, response to the pandemic. And I think that this has kind of contributed to to the debate in um, certain societies on what is the most important value in our society, whether it's freedom or whether it's our health um, or whether it's education. And I think that clearly the way that a lot of European countries have positioned themselves is that for them, like the prime value, I would say, is freedom rather than health. And that has cost a lot of lives, whilst you can see in other countries and even democracies in Asia, such as South Korea, 
the fact that more kind of authoritarian techniques have been used to address the the pandemic show that the kind of prime value um, in some of these societies is citizens' health. Mm-hmm. And do you personally think that there's a um, that freedom and health are mutually exclusive? You can only have one, not the other. For now, I think see one prime example of where freedom and health have been able to be combined so well. And I would say for me, that's Taiwan, because they were exposed to the pandemic very early. There's been other countries who've had um, successful COVID response, but they haven't been as exposed as Taiwan, was exposed very early and who took action very early. And on the contrary of other kind of Asian democracies, use basically um, their own citizens and the free will of their citizens to address the pandemic extremely effectively. Um, So I would definitely say that I think Taiwan's example shows us that both of them are not mutually exclusive. But of course, Taiwan has certain cultural distinctive features um, which are not present in Europe and kind of also highlight, I mean, to a certain extent, the weakness of certain European democracies who are not as rapid and effective um, in their decision making as, for example, uh, the Taiwanese democracy. Yeah, like you um, identify that there are cultural factors that are quite unique to Taiwan. And I think just to, because um, I'm conscious of time, we've got to wrap up the episode at some point. <laughs> so, you know, on you know you mentioned some specific um, limitations to the research and specifically in regards to Taiwan and its unique cultural um, demographic. What other challenges did you face in your research process and um, with COVID still ongoing? And did this fast changing nature of the topic affect the research at all? Uh, obviously, there were, um, yeah, like, like you mentioned, there were difficulties with the fast-changing nature of the thing we were trying to study. We, we do mention in the paper uh, a number of times that this is by no means a definitive analysis or a conclusive study. Uh, this is just the beginning of how the world was going to understand the effects of this public health crisis and the ideological and cultural repercussions that it's going to have. With this focus on COVID, and obviously as a research lead, you sort of set the tone for the research project and also the topic and the focus. Um, what drew you to this topic at the start? And why do you think that this is, a, this is a question for everyone, but why did you why do you guys think that this is a, um, a topic of relevance and why um, they should go on ahead and read your paper? Okay. As a research lead, when I was looking to apply to um, be part of a policy project in this think tank, this was the one that stood out to me. I have had an interest in, in the geographic region of uh, East Asia for a while. I also have an interest in um, how we can study this region and do a comparative political analysis or even uh, intellectual history to learn more about um, political ideology, human governance, and ways of organizing human social and political structures. So this is one of the reasons I got involved in this project in specific. The reason why I chose to focus on the COVID pandemic is because I think if we have to think about the most prominent crises in recent memory, we have the dot-com bubble, we have the 2008 stock market crash. And I think the two or three years following each of them were some of the most important years in the past uh, two decades for the development of economy, politics and um, society. And I think this is going to be um, a significantly uh, larger shift in the way that the world is organized. I would say I think the project um, is very relevant. I think a lot of us would say that this kind of century is the age of Asia. Asia is becoming, I think, the most kind of important continent um, kind of in the, in, on the global scene. And the developments that are going there, that are happening there, 
are going to have important impact on everybody, regardless of, wh of where they live in the world. And it's also, I think, a region that's extremely dynamic. Um, and I think it's interesting to look at how there's different models that are developing from the kind of classical Western models um, that we have seen. So I think there are lessons, I think, to be learned, regardless of what you're interested in, even if it's not um, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, to me, the most um, relevant thing about this project is the like distinct uh, distinction between democracy and authoritarianism. But because of COVID, that line has been increasingly blurred. I think uh, this project is a very good starting point for us to explore how that's gonna play out in the future, as Leo said earlier. But to say that um, COVID is the ch uh, turning point of a modern society, I don't think it would be uh, an unfair judgment, but particularly with authoritarianism and democracy, it's one of the most important things that has happened in, let's say, the past uh, half a century, I think. All right. Thanks so much for joining me on our podcast today and for sharing with us your various insights and reflections on the governments of China, Taiwan and India and the respective pandemic response. We try to cover as much ground as possible with quite a short episode, but there's still so much more to be discussed within this framework of democracy and authoritarianism in the context of COVID-19. Therefore, we really like to recommend anyone interested in finding out more about the topics mentioned to read onto their policy paper, which is now public, and also the complete BBI journal, which includes research papers and findings from other affiliated research teams. This has been Angela, Leo, Hugo, Aidan, Jasmine, who joined us earlier, and Afek, who's also part of the research team but wasn't able to join us today. Thank you again for listening to yet another episode of Narratives Asia, and stay tuned for the next one. Thank you all listeners for tuning in to this episode of Narratives of Asia. Dear listener, if you found this episode to be educational and learned something from this, do recommend this podcast to your friends and family by word of mouth or on social media. Tag us at UCL Asiatic Affairs on Instagram or Facebook. We would love to hear all of your thoughts on this episode. If you are interested in joining us on raising conversation about a certain topic related to Asia, don't be shy. Drop a message on our social media or email us at uclasiaticaffairs at gmail.com. I swear we're a cool bunch. Again, thank you so much for staying with us and stay tuned for another episode. We are Asiatic Affairs and this is Narratives of Asia. 